1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, we're taking travels in Japanese time with Anna Sherman and her debut book, The Bells of Old Tokyo. Anna Sherman was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. She studied Greek and Latin at Wellesley College before moving to Tokyo in 2001. And today we're going to be talking about her first book, The Bells of Old Tokyo Travels in Japanese Time. Anna, (laughs) welcome to Little Atoms.
0: Thank you so much for having
1: me. What's the idea behind the book, Anna?
0: The Examined Life, trying to understand um, the world around you, the people you meet. And although it's set in Tokyo, I think any person could do this in any place because the people we meet and the places we go where we live is so mysterious that it was really just my own effort to understand my own life so
1: but it is set in tokyo
0: it is set in tokyo yes <laughs> and
1: it's about it's set around this idea of the bells so tell yes. us about what these bells are
0: i love that you asked that question because i think that bells for a chinese national or a korean national or a japanese national come freighted with this beautiful history of literature and philosophy and religion so that certainly people of um, older Japanese, older Chinese, um, Taiwanese would associate them with um, mutability, impermanence, kind of a... um, There's a... A sense that they, the sound especially, moves between worlds. So it's very different than the Western concept of a clanging carry-on. Like, you know, there's we, we really don't have an equivalent in the West to the Japanese bell, um, and even it, it has become such a uh, how to describe it. Have you ever heard? Uh, yeah, I was going to say
1: so. Even let's let's go on a basic level. So this mm. is basically a bell, not like with a big mm. clapper inside, not at all, like a Western no. bell. It's a bell that you. No. hit with a big bit of wood.
0: Yes, a wood that's perhaps the size of a a, a fence slat, although they're usually um, cylindrical. And some of the great bells are, you know, a thousand years old. Usually they don't last so long because they'll crack and often, like Japan um, in its history, has been subject to, to fires. Uh, so many of them are destroyed through war or just just even metal wears out but that's the concept and again um because in in philosophy poetry and um, in some plays bells are almost characters they remind us of our mortality so people don't always like that again i i interview some pilgrims in the book who say oh we we don't like to think about bells because they make us think of death um
1: (laughs) so these bells they're the way the book the book is structured mm-hmm. is you sort of drift through mm-hmm. Tokyo, going mm-hmm. to various mm-hmm. districts where these mm-hmm. bells are cited or were. Some of them are not there any longer. Mm-hmm. And this is in the footsteps of another writer, isn't it? Tell me about yes. him.
0: He was a very interesting person. He was um, a man perhaps a bit like yourself. He was used to working in the world of sound. And at the very end of his life, he decided to do what I did, which was trace these bells and see if he could find them. Although I think perhaps... I'm not sure if it was because he was older. I don't know about his personal circumstances. Um, before I left Japan, I actually tried to contact his publisher and ask, but for one reason and another, that hasn't yet happened. So I may find out more about him. But there's a real elegiac quality to his search. Um, so when when he goes to Ueno and the bell doesn't ring, because and now I know it's because the bell ringer's wife, I think, sometimes gets quite fed up with um, having to ring it every day at noon. You know, he he describes just this this overwhelming sense of grief that he's missed the sound of that bell. Anyway he just, his job was to build a universe just from um, a snatch of, of a song or, you know, footsteps or or the sound that people make, the, the clapping sound before saying their prayers. Like, he really, I think, was trying to recreate this world that is forever gone. Um, I don't know. I just found him kind of compelling. And, and I, even though I didn't know very much about him, but again, I, I feel like the book, even though it's finished, is still a thing in progress um, and... <laughs> You know, perhaps I'll go back to Tokyo and find out what his story was.
1: So, as I said, the subtitle of the book is Travels in Japanese Time. Yes. And, and and these bells, one of their functions was, this is a time before, this is still a time when, you know, the, the Western world was, was basically barred out of japan and
0: we were allowed in in concentrated doses <laughs> they just controlled access
1: <laughs> um, but fundamentally there wasn't clocks so there's so the
0: there were clocks I, actually there's a, a certain amount of confusion on this point uh, just because clocks arrived in the 16th century i think in 1550 something um, and they were pretty um, quickly adopted and, um, and, and adapted to uh, the Japanese concept of time, which was much more flexible than our own mm. um, so the clocks preceded the bells um, they kind of existed in tandems but a clock was a was a, a rich person's toy like it, they really were more just to show you had one than to uh, keep the hours you know I think that there are quite wonderful um, stories about the pleasure quarters like where the courtesans lived and, the, and, and they were would pl- tinker with the clock so there are wonderful woodblock prints showing the women doing this. I guess speeding up if they were bored with a client, or you know, slowing down if they wanted someone to stay longer. So,
1: <laughs> well, you mentioned there the Japanese concept of time. So mm. okay, going back to the idea of these <laughs> bells, yes.
0: Um,
1: let's talk about that. Right? The, the Japanese relationship with uh-huh. time.
0: Right. That's such a hard question, and it was actually the genesis of this book. And I have to be honest with you and say I never really answered it, um, but. My solution was to ask other people whom I thought were really interesting and who would have interesting ideas about it. But the Japanese concept of time is really um, it's so layered. They inherit language from Sanskrit, which comes in with Buddhism, and that's for tiny, tiny fragments of time and also great eternities past anything we can imagine. They inherited um, the concept of breaking up years into eras um, from the Chinese so that there were these 60-year cycles. And then they had their own concept of time which was really much more uh, to do with um, harvests, like what, what the land was doing at a certain point. And it's, it's kind of amusing that in one of the earliest um, instances in which you know, the Japanese islands appear, it's in a Chinese history and the Chinese say, these people have no calendar. They, you know, they're you Concept is is when you plant and when you harvest and that's it. Like it was, I'm, I, it's um, so it was something also that evolved. And I think that perhaps all the different words and there are many, many, many different words for time in Japanese, um, perhaps instilled a sense of the complexity and and it's, it's just a multivalent concept.
1: And so, what so were the bells for?
0: The bells were more of a psychological control that the uh, last family of shoguns, the Tokugawa, used to keep people online. So they told you when to go to work, when to sleep, when to eat, when to show up places. It, it reminded you of who you were in the world. And so um, even there was this one bell whose nickname was the Get Home Bell, um, which was wrong in what's now Shinjuku. And it rang 30 minutes before the other bells so that the samurai had time to get back into, you know, basically their, their homes before... Uh, before the curfew. So, like I said, it was more of a psychological thing.
1: Let's just take a step back a minute and talk about <laughs> we'll how... keep
0: going back. back.
1: <laughs> I mean, not, not as far back as that. But I want to talk about how you ended up in Japan in the first place.
0: Well, I wanted an adventure. I said that to the Japanese who always looked worried. You know, I wanted an adventure. And um, at the time, um, I didn't have a mortgage or children. And so it was just... I just went. I was working as an editor in London and um, I, I wanted to travel, so I went.
1: And <laughs> So how did you first find it? Um,
0: it was amazing because suddenly, as a 30-year-old person, I was returned to the world of childhood because I couldn't speak the language, I couldn't read. So I could neither understand nor be understood except through gesture the looks on people's faces. And, you know, I, I did pick up the language and worked very hard to achieve a decent amount of proficiency, although I was, uh, frankly, I was never fluent. But it was like a return to childhood because you were so reliant on uh, just guessing things. And um, the world of the senses becomes so important. And so I, th- I think it was this profound gift to be returned to illiteracy. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I I have known how to read for years, and suddenly to have to just fight so hard to be able to understand what was happening around you. It was a gift.
1: And central to this book as well, and indeed how the book is structured, is a coffee shop.
0: Oh, yes. Tell us
1: about the coffee shop and the and the man that ran it.
0: Well, he. I was reading, like, I had a reader recently say that I have portrayed him as if he were a sage. And I think he would think that is hilarious because he was the least pretentious person. And there was a visitor to Japan in the 60s, or perhaps he arrived in the 50s, James Kirkup, a British visitor. And he said that coffee shops in Japan were unique because they were the one of the few truly democratic institutions because everyone um, was treated the same. And Japanese, formal Japanese within itself has strata you know, so that you, there's a special, there are verb forms for speaking to animals, to young children, to equals. There's a kind of feminine Japanese, masculine Japanese. There's certainly dialects. There's the kind of Japanese that you use when you're speaking to someone who's senior to yourself, to someone who's older than yourself, all these things. And I think the amazing thing about this this coffee shop was that there's a flattening out. So you come in and it was um, the The conductor, Seiji Ozawa, was also a regular visitor. Um, Murakami Haruki also... uh, I'm not sure how regular he was, but he did his his writing studios nearby. And those people would be treated exactly the same as a delinquent schoolgirl or a gaijin, (laughs) which is the Japanese word for foreigner. And so people... um, I was just accepted as the person I was, and that was Diva's philosophy, which is that if you made the coffee right and just let people be, that they would return to their inner selves, like that, which, you know, they, he, he has this idea that you spend your entire life building up armor and an affront to deal with um, strangers. And he said, if you just leave them alone and give them the kind of coffee they want, and, and I Um, or and he also he had other drinks in case for people who didn't drink coffee Um, then they will return to their true selves and I never until you've asked me this question have wondered what that means to be your true self but um, it it was something that Daibo has a very clear sense of (laughs) and I felt I felt um, able to do that there and not like a, a, a foreigner not like a you know, an outsider, not like anyone but myself. And like I said, there was this flattening out in this beautiful, beautiful space.
1: And so as I said the book is structured around the coffee shop mm. there's each chapter has a mm. has a visit to it
0: mm that's true Well, I learned different things there and I guess it was one of the most profound relationships that I had there was um I was also very close to my Japanese teacher the person who uh, initially taught me this very strange Japanese and um so I have uh, American friends who would say to me you don't your Japanese is wrong it's too formal because uh, you just, no one talks like this anymore. But my Japanese teacher's mother had been a person of the Meiji era, which is roughly equivalent to the Victorian era. So i learned this, this not just pre-war, but, you know, her father had been born just after the restoration. So really, um, really formal old fashioned Japanese. And I said to him, well, when I speak this Japanese, it gets me laughs. And he said, uh, there's the laughter of the angels and the laughter of the devil. You're getting the wrong laughs. But, uh, you know, it was how I learned to talk. May I just add one thing because yeah. you asked me the question about Daibo and I, I hadn't planned this but one thing I wanted to say is that a great Japanese philosopher of time said that in the West time is an arrow and in Asia it's often conceived of as a circle and so I thought in my book you know Daibo is the arrow like you see him and he's he's young and confident youngish and, and he's got this this coffee bar which is is just a I don't know a national treasure and then by the end it's it, uh, it disappears. Spoiler alert. (laughs) But um, and which, you know, was a grief to everyone. But it just that's what happens in a life, you know, so, you know, things change, you know, buildings in Tokyo get knocked down all the time. And then there are the bells, you know, these these circles that um, because they're they're laid out in a kind of circle. So I I felt like together that was my Tokyo.
1: You're listening to little atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Anna Sherman, and we're talking about her book, *The Bells of Old Tokyo: Travels in Japanese Time*. And Anna, in the second half, I want us to go through some of the some of the districts that you cover okay. in the chapters. Okay. Um, to begin that, though, you mentioned in the first part the Tokugawa Shogunate. Oh yes. Um, which was the rulers of Japan before the before the emperor was reinstated. Mm-hmm and before it was tokyo Mm -hmm. so there was a place tokyo was Edo before Mm -hmm. edo edo Mm -hmm. edo tell us what Mm -hmm. edo was like
0: oh it depends on who you were (laughs) if you were um if you were tokugawa i imagine it was quite a wonderful place to live if you were uh uh an an outcast it was it was probably less uh less great if you were intellectually curious i think it was also difficult place um so there were certain constraints, you know, conventions, for instance, just being a doctor, let's take that as an example, um, or, or uh, an astronomer, to get access to things that were happening outside uh, Japan at that time. And, um, you know, if you're an astronomer, Newton had proposed certain laws. And you would get glimpses of this, glimmers of this from books that were brought in from China. Uh, if you were a doctor, you would. Uh, there were advances in medicine that were happening. You know, microscopes that were being developed, um, certain medicines, um, uh, vaccines, and you were still having to work from texts that were perhaps a thousand years old. And so, I think that if you were an intellectually curious person, it could be very, very rigid and unforgiving because you couldn't get access to those books. You know, and so it required a lot of of, of cunning. Uh, to be able to live in the society, you also had to consent to live within all those constraints and rules. And so, you know, often the the, um, the kabuki plays are full of, of stories of people chafing against this um, this regime. But at the same time, it was it was a peaceful. You know, they were the Tokugawa's were masterful psychologists, so they they knew how to control people. So the samurai were engaged um, in pastimes to to distract them from doing anything that might undermine the the regime. Um, They were, anyone they didn't trust was required to be in Tokyo, or sorry, Edo, for a certain amount of time a year. And if they didn't trust you, you never got to leave, you know, you had to leave hostages. And I think that that is Certainly, um, one of the most important factors that sort of created the city because it was it was um, all Japan. You know, the less they trusted you, and in the, generally the further away you were. You know, like a lot of the families in um, Kyushu, the southern island of Kyushu or the kind of northwestern, very rich provinces, where you know they just had to stay. So you had you have a really kind of cosmopolitan culture that had not existed in that form anywhere else. So
1: what was the relationship to the rest of Japan at this time then? Because oh, it's not Kyoto. Question. Kyoto's mm. the yes. is it right to call it the capital at this time? I yes. mean it's the more important yes. city, certainly. Mm.
0: Well, the emperor was there, mm. but listen, I, I I said before, I this is such a complicated question that I I, I want to back away from it just because it's uh, it's just hard, and I, I suspect the answer is it varied from time to time, from shogun to shogun. Sometimes the shogun was rich and powerful, um, sometimes less so, you know, according to who was who was running the show. But
1: <laughs> well, you mentioned how, you know, how you would have done in Edo at the time, depending Mm. on what social strata you're in. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the outcasts. And one of the early chapters is in a district where there used to be a prison, an execution Mm -hmm. ground. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that area.
0: I had a reader who was saying, you must, you need to include more about the outcasts. And um, they did have a lot to do with the running of the prison. Did did you know that? Or no, they did. And and still in these outcast districts, um, they... Mm, there are parts of Tokyo which map uh, quite closely to, um, I suppose, what they, what they were in Edo. And I, I, as I understand, um, mm, but let me be careful because I, I, we're on ground that I, I can't speak of clearly. But I do know in the prisons that they were responsible for some of the day-to-day running because really this prison was run on a shoestring. It's, it's kind of amazing and a, a testament to their control of the population that uh, they were able to run it with really not very many staff.
1: You talk in the book about the executions mm. of prisoners and, mm. and, and sort of what the purpose of those were.
0: Yes, that, I, and I really must defer to a, a great scholar of, on the subject, Daniel Botsman, who has done just fascinating um, accounts of life in the prisons. And he, as he writes it, it was a mirror, a kind of distorted mirror of the world outside. Um, he he describes it as um, being sort of bodies signs. So you, you know, they were... Killing people not out of sadism, but as a kind of lesson to the rest of the populace, to, you know, to keep people in line. It was a more of that um, psychological, you know, excellent understanding of, of the psychology of ruling.
1: And then I wanted to talk about the district, Akasaka. Oh yes, and which you talk about. I mean, I think a, a side of Japan that that oh. we're sort of quite oh. familiar with the dark neon Japan of uh, Tokyo of hostess bars and love hotels. Uh-huh.
0: Yes, that was a, oh, um, that's a Japanese uh, social historian's formulation. He calls it the Sunshine City and the Shadow City. Um, Yes, but as a rule, they kind of coexist, uh, overlap in ways that, um, I I don't know, I think that the Japanese are kind of pragmatic about. What's interesting is that you have maps on which... Um, sort of the sunshine city doesn't appear. So if if you have a map of love hotels, I'm not sure how this translates to apps and smartphones these days, but like love hotels would be missing on maps that had museums and cultural institutions and vice versa. Like a map of the love hotels would, would you know, <laughs> not include things like embassies. <laughs> so almost as if they existed, the person who's written about this says, it, it, it's like they exist in the people's minds, like they're, they're kind of mental maps.
1: I want to bring us considerably forward from the Tokugawa shogunate to the yeah. um, to 1945 oh, yes. and the firebombing of, of of Tokyo you go to a museum here and the woman who guides you around is in her 80s and it turns out as a child basically lived through the firebombing and she has this incredible which again at the time you're not I mean, you know, she's done that, but you're not able to actually read her her testament at the point, Mm -hmm. which you then, you know, reproduce in the book, Mm -hmm. which is just incredible. So tell us about this woman, this amazing woman.
0: She was just so generous. And there is no sense, um, as she showed me around this space, which is full of um, relics of that terrible night that. I you know, that I was an American. I mean she just was educating me, I think. Um she rather when I say that I was an American and um that my compatriots had been responsible for the firebombs, the testament is very moving and um it, it's taken word for word from her you know, it's a translation of, of her words. So if, if it if it affected you, that was her writing um and her account, not mine. Um, She, what I found so poignant, though, is that she had been such a young girl, like only eight years old, I think. And uh, she felt responsible because when she, you know, they were passing people, like young, like a baby. And she felt, still thinks of of that baby and assumes that it didn't live. And that that was her responsibility. So to me, that was one of the most poignant Aspects is that she. What could she have done? They, they barely had enough food for themselves because I do cut off that account, I and mean, then she she goes on. Her sister was in fact injured, and um, they didn't have money to to treat the injuries. And they go in to see a doctor, and and some stranger gives money so that the the, the sister's wounds can be treated. And um, you know she uh, just, but she still is thinking about this child, and and there is a, a sense of responsibility. I witnessed the life, and and. She, the guilt of, of witnessing but not helping will always stay with me, as if she had been responsible. Just yeah.
1: And so after the war America occupies Japan and obviously, you know, Tokyo needs a massive amount of rebuilding and reimagining. And I mean those two things are really sort of inextricably linked, aren't they? The occupation, the rebuilding of Tokyo.
0: How do you mean? Just because Tokyo's been rebuilt so many times. Well, it, just,
1: it, just the direction <laughs> mm-hmm. that Japan went post-war seems unimaginable well, that's without the American occupation. Yes,
0: yes. It's still a, a point of contention, the, um, the peace constitution and how it was... Um, like John Dower is just essential reading on that for anyone who wants to understand, I think, the, uh, the current um, political... Just framework of the country you should read that um, embracing defeat. I mean, it's a
1: it's it, it's all there. <laughs> and so, you know, it that in mind. What's mm. I mean, there's another a, a chapter in the book where you talk about where the Tokyo Tower now is. There's mm-hmm. a, an old um, temple from the Tokugawa period yes, that was yes. com- you know completely destroyed mm-hmm. during the firestorms. And I wanted to talk about Tokyo's attitude to the past. As you said, it's constantly being rebuilt. So there's mm-hmm. you know the idea of preserving the past in a sort of heritage way is not necessarily something that they you know they share with us but also again there's this idea that you know the city was destroyed in the second world war and rebuilt sort of very rapidly in a a sort of different plan so let's just say something about the city's sort of attitude to its past i guess
0: Well, I think we're back to the ringing of the bell Mm. and mutability and um, the impermanence. Um, It is so difficult to know, and I think that that would vary from individual to individual, like how people think of it. Um, Some of the older people whom I met, um, and, and I was fortunate enough to have friendships with people who were in their 60s and 70s were, I think, perhaps grateful to have survived and they didn't examine things too much. Daibo himself, like, when I um, had come from interviewing Chia-san, who is the person who, who designed the memorial to the air raids, um, Daibo-san looked at this... Um, book that I had brought back because it shows Shia-san's work and he just said why are you why are you interested in this and I must be clear that Daibo came from um the northern Japan and which really wasn't bombed as heavily but I think also he was a much more optimistic generation like they were I mean it was he loves jazz he loved French culture you know it was it was a kind of um you know he was born after the war and um was a uh, just a, a much more op- optimistic type attitude you know there would be people my age who I think questioned and they could look and see how much was lost and and feel perhaps angry um but like I said, I think it it's just that's such a hard question because it depends on what happened to an individual family and it would it depends on you know person to person like your attitude towards um uh, towards the second world war you know versus your father's versus you know someone a, a millennial you know or a, a child who wouldn't have heard of it you know it's ancient history <laughs> to them
1: and just one more thing then so now this book is written and it's had you as you you mentioned a long time to write it
0: <laughs> who's counting
1: on reflection what does the city mean to you now
0: um wow i loved it as the thing i could never completely understand and i think in every person's life there is a space like that an idea you know, even a relationship. But for me, it was it was like infinity, just so that I think it was Borges or maybe Lewis Carroll who said that if you if you had a map, if you wanted to make a map of of the earth, like you need a a map as large as the earth, you know, you'd have to scale it down. So I think um, it's a journey I'll never finish. And I was grateful to the city for having given me that.
1: So I've been talking to Anna Sherman. We've been talking about her first book, which is The Bells of Old Tokyo, Travels in Japanese Time, which is out now in the UK from Picador. Anna, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by ACAST. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.